I'll invite you guys to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, the words will be on your screens throughout the morning, but as you're turning there and your hard copies, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Jay Freimeyer. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Road. If you're a guest with us this morning, I'd love to, to meet you. So if you have time after the service, come by and say hi. And uh, yeah, I'd love to get to know you guys a little bit. Um, we took a break for a few months from 1 Corinthians, but Jeremy got us back in there last week in 1 Corinthians 9, and so um, we're just cruising right along in chapter 10 today. And so uh, let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive in. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this place and this space and this time that you've given us to worship you as the people of God. And so we pray that in this time that you would give us the full measure of your spirit, that you would illuminate the words um, from 1 Corinthians 10, that you would um, convict us of sin, and you would turn us back to you, and you would make us to look more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Is there any, anything I can do about that breathing thing? Is it just kind of, okay, I'll just keep going. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, so this week, at one point midweek, Brooke called me uh, in the middle of the day, I think it was on Wednesday, and she said, okay, like she, I could tell she was frantic, and she said, I need advice. And of course, in that moment, I'm like, okay, you called the right guy, let me hang on here, okay. Uh, so a little over a week ago, our seven-year-old, Henry, got sent home from school. Um, somebody else in his class had tested positive for COVID, and so they had the, the protocol where his whole class just got sent home. Uh, he's since tested negative, and he's back at school. Um, but there was one day this week where a buddy came over, and they were playing. And towards the end of that play date, Henry had decided that it was a good idea to chase his friend around with a large, dangerous object and to threaten to hurt him. To which I thought, well, why did you call me, Brooke? I don't want to. <laughs> I thought this was going to be easy advice, right? So uh, I, I had a couple hours before I got home to think through, okay, how do I, how do I talk to my son about this? How do we have a a helpful conversation, right? Like not just punish him for something he's done wrong, but actually see fruit on the other side. And so I decided to, to take him out for a drive and we just had a talk because at seven now we can have conversations with him and we can talk through why we did certain things. And so I just asked him, I said, buddy, did you think about what you did before you did it? And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, like, did you think that it wouldn't be a good idea to chase my friend around to pretend to hurt him? And his response was really helpful. He said, no, it just came into my brain and I did it. <laughs> I said, okay, that's helpful, actually. Um, so why did you do it, though? Like, what made you think that this would be a good idea? He said, well, it made him laugh. Like, he, he thought it was funny, and so I just did it. And so I said, okay, let me understand here. So you thought your buddy would like you more if you chased him around with this dangerous object and he would be more of your friend. He's like, yeah, that's exactly it. That's, that's why I did it. And so in the moment, I thought, wow, this is actually very insightful. And I couldn't even be mad in the moment. And here's why. Because I'm no different. And neither are you, right? Like we don't sin because it's a chore. We don't sin out of duty. We sin out of delight. And even if it's just for a moment of, of this satisfaction that we feel, we sin out of enjoyment. It's in us. Like, it is wired in us. It comes into our brains, as Henry said, or it comes into our hearts, and we just do it. Now, our, our underlying motivations might be different, but the desire for sin is similar for all of us. So this morning in chapter 10, Paul is warning the church in Corinth not to fall into idolatry. 
And as we consider what he's urging them to do, I'm hopeful that this morning we will see that it's not simply enough for us to rid ourselves of sin and idolatry, but that we also must be filled with a greater desire. We must have affections for something more that overcomes these lesser affections. So let's dive into our text. Paul begins by showing this, us that anyone is capable of becoming an idolater. In verse 1 he says, For I do not want you to become, uh, be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ." So in case those in Corinth had forgotten, he reminds them of who the people of Israel were and who God was to them. And where does he go? He goes straight to the Exodus. Now, I don't want to insult anyone's Bible knowledge in here, but I also don't want to assume that all of you have read the Old Testament and are familiar with it. So we're going to go over some of the highlights that Paul might have been referencing within these four verses. So the people of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's all they knew, it's all their parents knew, it's all their grandparents knew, and so on. They were slaves. So when God called Moses and Aaron to approach Pharaoh that first time, it didn't really go well for them. In fact, Pharaoh multiplied their labor. So at the time, the Israelites were making bricks for Egypt. Uh, That's what they were doing in their slavery. And so when, when Moses and Aaron approached Pharaoh uh, to ask them to be set free, he multiplied their work by saying, I'm no longer going to provide straw for you to make these bricks. Now you have to go gather your own straw, and you also have to make the same amount of bricks. Now at the time, the people of Israel were going back and forth. They, they liked the idea of being free, and they thought, hey, this is a good idea. But when Moses and Aaron approached them, it didn't work out so well. They said, well, why did you do this? this? Why, did you make, why did you make our work harder? But God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He sent plague after plague after plague. And after that 10th one, Pharaoh decides, I'm going to set these people free. God led them by pillar of cloud and pillar by fire so they could travel either by day or by night. And he showed them exactly where they were to go. So as the people of Israel marched towards the Red Sea, Pharaoh realized how much labor had just left. And he decided, well, why did, why did we just let this free labor go? So he decides in that moment to, to again pursue them and capture them and bring them back Uh, to Egypt to be slaves. So Exodus 14, verse 10 through 12, captures the mindset of Israel in that moment. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. But they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, just before that moment, they had to be feeling pretty good, right? They're hanging out in their camp. Uh, they're, they're right before the Red Sea. They're probably envisioning like their life of freedom that they don't even know how to comprehend because they've only been slaves their whole life. So they're probably sitting there thinking of this. And then they look up and they see Pharaoh. Now, this was no small amount of people. Uh, Exodus 12, 37 kind of puts us in the estimation of around two to two and a half million people, uh, the people of Israel, which is about the size of Houston, Texas, the fourth largest city in the U.S. So here they are, a people the size of Houston being pursued by Pharaoh and his vast army. And because God took them on this route, there's no way of escape. They've got the Red Sea on one side and the Egyptian army on the other. They have nowhere to go. 
And Moses, in response, assures them, and he says this. Now hear this read slowly. This is verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So in that moment, Moses lifts up his staff, and on either side, these two huge walls of water make this huge towering wall beside them, and the ground turns from mud to dry ground. They walk across two point whatever million of them. They walk across. The angel of the Lord moves behind them, so there's this thick cloud, so the Egyptians can't pursue them until they're all the way across. Then once they get across, the angel of the Lord lifts the cloud. The Egyptian army comes into the waters, thinking they're safe. But what does the Lord do? It says, he sends the army into a panic. He clogs their wheels of the chariots and closed the waters in over them. So the same water that delivered Israel brought destruction to Egypt. And Moses' words came true. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. So then after that, they need provisions, right? They need to eat and they need to drink. And so God provides for them. He provides water from a rock. He makes it rain food. Food is falling from the sky for them. This becomes the basis for Paul's argument. Don't miss this. God's deep love and commitment to his people is on full display at every step of the way. But then we get to verse 5 in 1 Corinthians 10, and we find out that this wasn't a perfect fairy tale ending. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So why? Why was God not pleased with them? So the next section here is bookended by almost the same verse, verse 6 and 11. Verse 6 says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So what took place as our example? At several places throughout the Old Testament, Paul pulls out some examples of how they were unfaithful. And we're going to look at those just very quickly. We'll walk through them. Verse 7, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is a direct quote from Exodus 32. If you guys remember, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he's receiving the Ten Commandments from God. And I don't, I don't know how long it had been, but the people began to say, hey, where's Moses? You know, it's kind of taken him a while. We don't know where he's at. Hey, Aaron, why don't you make us an image or this, uh, construct us something that can go before us? And Aaron, in his infinite wisdom, says, okay, let's do that. So they melt down their jewelry and their rings, and they, he forms this calf, and they begin to worship it. Blatant and short-sighted idolatry. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. This is from Numbers 25. The people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. This is from Numbers 21, verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. And then finally in verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is from Numbers 14. 
And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Listen to how crazy that is. We wish we'd have just died. Or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us go choose a leader and go back to Egypt. These are the things that were written down for our instruction. These are the things that have been given to us as an example that we might not desire evil as they did. Now remember, this is the same generation that crossed the Red Sea, okay? The same people that God performed miracle after miracle after miracle for. They proved themselves faithless, not faithful, They became overwhelmed to the point that they said, we don't know what's ahead with God, but we are afraid of that. Therefore, we would rather go back to Egypt and know that we are slaves than to move forward with God and not know what the future holds. That's what they said. But here's our reality, guys. This is us. This is our story. And that is Paul's entire point. That's why he says in verse 12, the very next verse, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If they can fall, you can too. We are not immune from this, but there's good news. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So you will never be faced with a situation where your only response is to sin. That will never happen. That is the promise here. Like there are never gonna be two options and both of them are sinning against God. That's not going to happen. You may feel that in the moment certain times, but here's the promise that that will never happen. So therefore, verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You run, you run from idolatry. If you remember a couple of months ago, we were in, Uh, chapter eight, which is just two chapters ago. So we took a break, but I think it was just before Thanksgiving. And the charge then was that um, these people would not eat meat sacrificed to idols because it harmed the consciences of their weaker brother or weaker sister. But here Paul ratchets it up a notch and he says in verse 20, no, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord, receive communion, feast with the Lord, and also feast with demons. You cannot do it. What you're doing is actually fellowshipping, participating, associating with demons. So here's the progression for the people in Corinth, okay? They got saved. They received salvation in Jesus, okay? So they're no longer enslaved to sin, so then they see this, this food that's offered to idols. It means nothing to them anymore because they know these idols are fake. So therefore they decide, hey, I kind of want to eat this meat. Why would we waste this good steak? Like I'm going to eat this now. That's great. But then they decide, hey, since we're already in this pagan temple and we're already around these people that are worshiping these gods, we're going to go ahead and do that as well. That was their progression. So I think we can sum up what Paul would say to them and what he would say to us this morning is past experiences of God's mercy and grace do not equal your present day faithfulness. I'm gonna say that one more time. Past experiences of God's mercy and grace do not equal your present day faithfulness. So my fear this morning is that some of us, even in this room, might just be running on fumes. 
right? Like maybe you had an experience at some like youth camp years ago, or you had some women's retreat uh, a few years ago, or like you're looking back to some time long ago where you had a real encounter with God, but since then there hasn't been much life there. So how do we move forward? I want to begin with some simple questions. What or who is it that I most desire? Think on that. What do I desire most? What or who is all satisfying to me? Like what gives me fulfillment? Uh, What or who do I live for? Pastor and commentator Stephen Um says this, idolatry happens beneath the level of action. It happens on the level of appetite and desire. Idolatry shows up in the subtle twists of ordinary desires and activities, eating, drinking, playing, marrying, and having sex. These activities and desires are often not ends in of themselves. We need to catch this but are means to another end, personal fulfillment, comfort, security, power, control. Whenever we take a created thing and put it to use in such a way as to meet a need or fulfill a desire that only the creator can ultimately fulfill, we are committing idolatry. When we use food or substances or sexual activity to fulfill or numb our deep desires, we are engaging in idolatry. Idolatry ultimately spoils life, because we aren't able to enjoy things for what they actually are. Idolatry is in the air we breathe, but it's rarely explicit. Most people don't know it's happening. They don't say, I want this instead of Christ. They say, I want Christ plus this. Now to get to the idols of one's heart, one has to step back and consider the way one's desires shapes his or her life. So he asked some other questions for us here. What drives us to go to work or not work the way we do? What causes us to eat or drink or not eat or drink the way we do? What desires lie behind the way we relate or don't relate to our spouse? What do we daydream about, fantasize about, long for? Do we often say, if I only had this, or if I were only like this, what is our desire pointing at? What is our affection pulling us toward? What is our end goal. Answering these questions will help us discover some of the layers of idolatry in our own hearts. So Thomas Chalmers was a professor and well-renowned orator in Scotland in the early to mid-1800s, and one of his more famous works is called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. So since then, uh, this this, uh, message has been put into print, and it's been uh, updated over and over, and I, th- I think it was a few months ago, a new copy came out. And the forward of that book, I believe, is really helpful for us to consider this morning. And this is just an excerpt of a forward from, from that work. If you had access to all the latest machinery in a sophisticated science lab, what would be the most effective way to get all the air out of a glass beaker? One ponders the possible ways to suck the air out and create a vacuum. And I know some of you are scientists or engineers in here. You're thinking, you're like, okay, I, I got this. Like, hold on, don't give me the answer yet, right? And then the answer is given. You fill it with water. That is the point of Chalmers' famous message. It is intended as an illumination of 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Chalmers poses for himself this question. How shall the human heart be freed from its love for the world? 
Or, to this illustration, how shall the air of the world love be removed from the soul beaker? This love is not a duty one performs. It is a delight one prefers. It is an affection before it is a commitment. He says there are two ways one might seek to remove this controlling affection from the heart. One is to show that the world is not worthy of our affection and will let us down in the end. Now, this argument corresponds to using a pump to suck out the air of the beaker. The other is to show that God is vastly more worthy of the heart's attachment, thus awakening a new and stronger affection that displaces the former affection for the world. This corresponds to pouring water into the beaker, hence the expulsive power of a new affection. Chalmers himself states his purpose, and that's to show that from the constitution of our nature, the former method is altogether incompetent and ineffectual, and that the latter method will alone suffice for the rescue and recovery of the heart from the wrong affection that domineers over it. So this is why every single week, before we tell you what to do, which here in a few moments, I will tell us some steps we can take, some things we can do. And so many of us are like, hey, just tell me what to do at the start. Like, go ahead and just give me the answers. Tell me what to do. But before we do that, our goal every week is to paint this beautiful picture of who Jesus is and not like more extravagant than he actually is. We don't need to do that. We just show you him as he is, that he's full of goodness, that he's full of mercy, he's full of grace, he's full of love, he's full of righteousness and holiness, just showing you who Jesus is as he is. And as you hear the, I, like as I think of these things, I can't help but think of Matthew 13, 44. And I don't know if I say this too much, but it's all I think about when I think about this, when uh, the parable of the man who stumbles over the field, like he finds the treasure in the field. And as soon as he finds it, he covers it back up. He doesn't want anybody else to find it. And he goes and sells everything he has for that field. He gives up everything for the treasure in that field. And that's the question for us this morning. Like the treasure is Jesus. The treasure is the kingdom of God. Have we sold everything else for this treasure? Is he our greatest affection? So how do we respond this morning? I think we should start by examining ourselves. Examine yourself. Ask the Spirit to reveal any sin or darkness or rebellion within you, especially that which you probably can't see. And don't be like defensive with the Spirit and say, well, I, I said that because of, of this, or you don't know how that person treats. No, don't, don't do that. Like I, I was reading Matthew 26 this week and um, Jesus is having one final Passover with his disciples um, before he goes to the cross. And um, I had never noticed this before until this week, this, in verse 22, or just before that, he says, one of you is about to betray me, right? And the response is what struck me. It said, and they all were very sorrowful. And they began one by one saying, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Now what the text does not say is they appeared to be sorrowful or they pretended to ask this question knowing that it wasn't them that was gonna betray Jesus, but they, they asked it anyways. It says, and they were very sorrowful, which what does that tell us? Like none of them thought that it was beyond them to betray their Lord. None of them thought that they couldn't do it. They all knew the sinfulness in their hearts and the depths of their depravity and they said, is it me? Is it me? This morning when you examine yourself, you let the Spirit look into your heart and you invite him in. Have that posture. Like, is it I? Like, could, 
Am I capable of that? And the answer is yes, you are. Examine yourself. Number two, run to Jesus. Again, we probably say this all the time, but we're gonna keep reminding you, run to Jesus. Dane Ortland has recently written a book called Gentle and Lowly, and I think Jeremy referenced it a couple weeks ago. I'd highly recommend it to you guys. But in it, he explains how God deals differently with different people in their sin. He says this, what elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of the sin, but whether or not the sinner comes to him. Whatever our offense, he deals gently with us. If we never come to him, we will experience a judgment so fierce, it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth at us. But if we do come to him, as fierce as his lion-like judgment would have been against us, so deep will be his lamb-like tenderness for us. We will be enveloped in one or the other, but to no one will Jesus be neutral. Indeed, given the depths of our sinfulness, the fact that Jesus has not yet cast us off proves that his deepest impulse and delight is patient gentleness. Our sinfulness runs so deep that a tepid measure of gentleness from Jesus would not be enough. But as deep as our sinfulness runs, ever deeper his gentleness. So whatever evil picture you have of Jesus, like hiding around a corner, waiting to trip you up from your sin, or like as you approach him, like he's pointing his finger at you, like he's accusing you. Yeah, look what you did. Like whether that's your, your, your bent, like your nature, or like you grew up in a home that was just harsh, whatever that is, it's just false. It's just wrong. That is not how the pictures show us who Jesus is. A few weeks ago, I, had, uh, I was meeting with a friend who was confessing some sin to me, just broken over his sin. And I couldn't help but the, the woman who was caught in adultery, who the, the crowd like throws before Jesus' feet, right? And they're ready to just stone her. They're, they're ready to kill her for what she's done. And so Jesus says, hold on a minute. How about the first one among you that hasn't sinned, you get to throw the first stone. And he like starts drawing the dirt. Like this is just this weird scene. Like we don't know what he's drawing. I mean, I mean, commentators like guess, but he's just like doodling. And then he looks up after a while and uh, he says, woman, where are they? Like, has, is, has no one stayed to condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Yes, he says, go and sin no more. But what does he say first? I do not condemn you. You've been set free. Now go and sin no more. So no matter how deep you feel like you are in sin this morning, this is Jesus' response to you if you come to him with open arms receiving us. Next, discipline yourself for godliness. And this is where it can become work for us. Like we've got to work. In case you forgot um, from last week, the end of chapter nine, Paul says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control. A more hard or literal reading might say, I pummel my body and make it a slave. Now that sounds like torture, right guys? <laughs> Why does he do that? So that immediately after preaching, he doesn't become disqualified is what Paul says. So Paul has one goal in mind. He's laser focused. Like he wants to see the kingdom of God extended throughout the whole world. Like he wants to see sinners come to salvation in Jesus. Therefore, everything else gets to go. Everything. He disciplines himself. He's self-controlled and he doesn't lose sight of what's ahead. James K. Smith in Desiring the Kingdom says this, our heart's desires are shaped and molded by the habit-forming practices in which we participate daily. So first, we need a new and greater desire. Absolutely, we need a new and greater desire, which is Jesus. 
but we also need to be fanning into flame our desires for him. So creating and adhering to spiritual disciplines are for our good. Kind of like a diet that you might adopt or like working out, exercise. It's hard. It's not fun all the time, but it's good for us. So find a Bible reading plan and stick with it. It, I, it doesn't matter. what I don't care what Bible reading plan. What Bible reading plan is the best? The one that you're going to do, right? That's the best. Pray often and confess your sin regularly to God. Keep short accounts with God. Hey, rest. Rest. Take a break and remind yourself that you are not God. Um, hey, turn off your devices. Turn off your phones. Uh, an hour a day, a day a week, and a week a year. Turn them off. Turn off your phone. Like, would some of you just feel naked if you didn't have your phone on you? Like, do you ever feel that way? I'm the only one? Okay, I'm the only one. Uh, let's turn them off. Take a break. Don't be so attached to our devices. Re- get in the word. Spend time with your families and enjoy nature. It's okay to do those things. Take a break from them. And then finally, flee from idolatry. Exactly what Paul says in verse 14. If you find yourself this week desiring some sin or an idol that's taken root in your heart, flee. If you were to look up a definition of what that means, it's twofold. So to often escape desire or evil, that's part of it, but also to run and hide in a safe place or a place of security, right? So run from sin and run to Jesus. So no matter how deep your sin, here this morning, that it's good for us to seek security in a safe place in Jesus. I just want to say one more thing to those of you in the room that might, um, like you might consider where you are at right now in sin so deep that you don't know how to get out. Like you might picture it like quicksand, that you're sinking, and there is no way of escape. I'm just going to ask you to do two things, okay? As I mentioned before, run to Jesus. He is there with open arms to receive you, like the prodigal son coming home. That is how his, his disposition is towards you. Receive grace and mercy in Jesus. That's number one. Number two, I want you to just tell one person you trust. Just tell one person you trust. Start to shed light on this sin, whatever it is. Addiction to drugs and alcohol. Maybe you're having an affair. Maybe you're just so caught up in Americanized consumerism. Maybe you can't help but tell a lie. I don't know what that would be for you, but you run to Jesus this morning and you tell one person you trust. And if you don't have anybody you trust, I hope that you at least trust the leadership of this church enough to to find me or find Jeremy, find your missional community leader, and you start to shed light on this sin that has captured your heart. Now let us consider again how we are to go about removing the air of world love from our soul beaker. Remember that this love is not a duty we perform, it is a delight we prefer. So it's not enough to show ourselves that our idols are not worthy of our affection and will let us down in the end. So may we keep putting before ourselves that God is infinitely more worthy of our heart's attachment and continually awaken within us a new and stronger affection that displaces our former affections for worldly idols. Let's pray. Father, we admit in this moment that we just need you. And there are times that our sin can, can feel so overpowering that we don't know how we can possibly move forward. And so I pray for 
my brothers and sisters in the room this morning or those that are watching at home, that maybe that's them. And I just ask that this morning they would not hear the accusations from Satan. They would not hear the accusations of their own heart to believe that they're not good enough, that they would hear and receive the grace and mercy that we all receive in Jesus. We've all fallen short. We all need your grace and mercy. None of us are worthy. And yet you've performed miracle after miracle after miracle in our own lives, and we still disbelieve. So God, I pray that you help us to believe this morning, help our unbelief, help us to confess sin in a big way. I pray that you... You help us to find people we trust in our lives that we can confess these things and find accountability and deep trust. And above all else, just help us to look more like you. God, we love you. We pray these names, things in Jesus' name, amen.